game is so beautiful, you know. Come play. The page dynasty is the newest rage. Maybe you've played, maybe you've made a trade. Made list, and now these fish are all up on ya. I mean, you won three ships, they wish they had your So, this is it. You wanna learn the game. 101 pick when it hits, you feel no pain. Praying for the fantasy championship. Hit the books, kid. Read this pamphlet called the Owner's Manual. It's automatic D dynasty. It it's automatic owner's manual. It it it's automatic D dynasty. It it's automatic. <laughs> and here are your authors, C Chris Allen and A A Adam Wildy. All right, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Chris Allen, the host of the Dynasty Owners Manual podcast. We've been on vacation for at least a couple of weeks, but we're still here for you guys. And we're here to bring you the content that you need in continuing the, it's the positional series that we've been working through. And we'll have Adam recap that here in just a second. But, of course, I wanted to bring in our guest. And if you've seen any of the offensive line rankings and things of that nature, you've seen this man's work. Uh, he's been over at... Pro Football Focus, doing some charting for them, and then now recently he's been working uh, with me over at 444 uh, since uh, for probably about a few months now. I forget how long it's been, Justin, but uh, we're welcoming in uh, Justin Edwards to the show today in order to talk to us about offensive lines because to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, I think it's one of the misunderstood positions in football. I think our attention as fantasy owners, as fantasy managers, is really just to the skill position players, running backs, tight ends, wide receivers, quarterbacks, and all those guys. But what really drives most of that production, what allows most of that production to happen, is offensive lines. So I mean, that's why we've got you here tonight. Thanks for coming in. And uh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Uh, excited to be here. I had your guys... Uh pod in my subscription feed since day one so it's nice to finally be on it mm -hmm. um yeah everything you said right there is exactly what i've been trying to pound home with my series for four for four over the last few months is talking about how much these offensive linemen really mean to our fantasy football production yeah and i think that's the that's the biggest thing and i i want to say that when it comes to just offensive production in general for the most part, I mean, you've got your outliers, right? You've got your Deshaun Watsons, you've got your Russell Wilsons that, uh, regardless of the offensive line play, they can kind of bend the offense to their will. But for a lot of guys, the, the older guys, like the Tom Brady's, the Drew Brees, they really do need to have uh, that, that, that front seven being the guys that protect them, that allow them to do the things that they do. And so in better understanding that, that's why we've got you in here. And so to kind of kick things off, uh, of course, my, my partner in crime, uh, Mr. Wildy, I think I might have butchered your name a couple of times the other night when I was talking to Mr. Dynasty Outhouse on the Trade Addicts <laughs> podcast, but uh, we had a little fun the other night in reminiscing or talking about our, our respective co-hosts, but tell the folks what they have in store for them tonight. Never gets old. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Justin. This is one of the more exciting ones to talk about because it doesn't get talked about. So to recap, this is the fourth episode of our positional series. So we have talked wide receiver with Matt Harmon, quarterback with Mark Schofield, 
uh, running back with Bob Long. And now we're talking about offensive line. We thought that would fit in nicely right behind running back because that's probably what it affects most, what you'll be telling us today. So it's really important for us to talk about this offensive line because we're not drafting offensive lines, but we're drafting people behind offensive lines. And we know using all these stats that we talked about with Bob Long that we're trying to isolate the good running backs uh, regardless of their offensive lines. We go out of our way to, to do that. So shouldn't we also go out of our way to find the good offensive lines with the bad, bad running backs or maybe not as good running backs because we have all these stats like uh, yards after carry and how elusive is a running back. And those are all great but it still seems like you need that offensive line. So let's jump into the the philosophy of this thing. Should we start digging into individual blocking schemes and the coaches involved with these schemes more? Uh, I don't know if we need to necessarily memorize team-by-team blocking schemes, but it is a very worthwhile endeavor to see if teams are drafting uh, a fit to what they already have in place. Talking about like a zone running scheme or an outside zone running scheme, it's specifically to take an example of Daryl Henderson, a big reason why I'm big on him is because he was deadly on outside zone rushes in college. He averaged nearly 11 yards per carry over the last two seasons. That's over a 53 attempt sample size, so pretty pretty substantial there. Uh, now he's going to the Rams, who ran the ball in outside zone 217 times in 2018, which is way, way more than any other team in the league. So that's such a good fit blocking scheme and running back there or Buffalo, who's trying to do the same thing with Devin Singletary. Uh, They took him in the third round, even though they had LaShawn McCoy and Frank Gore back there. I think a big reason behind that is they want him to learn that zone scheme even better behind those two veteran zone running running backs who likely won't be there by next year. Now, this is a question I want to ask a little bit off the show sheet just because it came to mind. So with Philip Lindsay and Royce Freeman – who really fits that mold better? And is there any way we can kind of identify who might get the run this year? I, I mean, Lindsay fit it so well last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a, a question of fit or um, talent there. It's just he's such a tiny dude. Mm-hmm. I think he gets first run there, but how long can his body hold up? He's short, 170 pounds, 165 pounds. But yeah, yeah. yeah some, some tiny. <laughs> he's small. <laughs> But, I mean, I think he gets first run off the bat, and we're not really good at predicting injuries, so yeah. I wouldn't predict him to get injured. So I'd stick with him. Yeah, I think so. I'm wondering, though, just going back real quick to uh, your your point on Buffalo, is that I mean, we've got – so we've got LaShawn McCoy, we've got Frank Gore, we've got TJ Yeldon, and now we've got Devin Singletary. Mm-hmm. I mean, do we really think – I mean, this is a question to both of you guys. Do we really think that – all four of those guys are going to make the team like going into the 2019 season. I mean, Singletary, I mean, he almost had, he has to be a lock, right. Based off of the draft capital that they spent LaShawn McCoy, I would assume based on his contract, like if they wanted to get out of it and just outright cut him to try and save money, they probably should have done that already. They, are, they already took the larger hit. Of yeah, I guess it's possible. Yeah, it's possible for them to still recoup some money, but I think if they really wanted to go ahead and cut ties and you know and save some money, they should have done that already. I think it was six million that they lost by not cutting him so far. So he's probably not going either. Probably not going either. So you've got Frank Gore and then TJ mm-hmm. Yeldon. Both are super cheap. Yeah, right. Gore, Gore is like a base salary is. One and a quarter million. So that's nothing in NFL. NFL yeah, that's why I'm wondering. Like, probably uh, carrying them. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering why they wound up. I guess maybe they didn't go into the draft thinking they'd be able to get Singletary. But yeah. at the same time, or he's I'm just hard, a guy to him. Yeah, but I'm hard pressed to believe they're going to enter the season with all four of these guys. Mm-hmm. So out of the four, like, do you think like which one do you guys think will wind up getting cut? Well, Singletary was the third round, so I, unless he does something terrible this offseason, yeah, they're not, not going to cut anywhere. the third round pick. Yeah. So yeah. I guess Yeldon or Gore. So for me, it comes down to either Gore or Yeldon. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't get it. So I'm they just wondering. Like, the whole well. Yeah, that's and see to me that seems wild, but this is also yeah. the same team that wound up like you know going out and getting Cole Beasley and John Brown and like a bunch of redundant assets at right. like a wide receiver. So it's like uh, well, okay, fine. The Redskins have been carrying four for a while too. I mean, I think it's wild, but teams doing yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess. playing a lot of special teams this year. Yeah, yeah, my like this yeah. is my like tinfoil hat conspiracy theory is that they'll just give Frank Gore just enough run to get to what was it like he'll get make number four all time rushing, yeah, yeah, and then just let him go. Like, <laughs> I think he's like I think he's like five hundred yards, like four or five hundred yards off yeah. of the next like all time rusher. So just let him get like four or five hundred yards. It might mm-hmm. take like six or seven games. Yeah, just let him do that. And then, and then have me done. He's just going to chuck the deuces after the game. Yeah, after that, that awesome. at that at that point, who cares? I mean, yeah. he just like gets his gets to that, and then he retires like at halftime. Like, who was it that did it last year? Uh, Dante that, Davis. Yeah, oh, just yeah. just like you know what, I'm done. Like I, I, I've, I've paid my dues. I'm out of here, guys. I think if you had to pick a Bills running back, I would just I'd pick TJ Yeldon. He's probably the cheapest, and he's been the most productive, the most recent. So, sure. But I think you're throwing at a dartboard either way. Yeah. Yeah. I think in drafts, like, unfortunately, like, just uh, based off of, like, price, I've been taking some stabs at TJ Yeldon just because I think, yeah, LaShawn McCoy is not going to make it. I don't think he's going to make it the entire season. Frank Gore, like, he's – I mean, he is the inconvenient truth. So, but still, I, I do believe that after he gets, like, his – all-time rusher record or makes it to the next level, then he just, you know, then he pieces out. So then it just really leaves Singletary and Yeldon. And I don't know. It's just, I don't understand the bills. I don't get it. They, they just don't make any sense. The bills don't understand the bills. That's probably true. But getting back to uh, offensive lines and why we brought you in, Justin. Uh, so when it comes to, I guess when it just comes to the offensive line in general, I just, as I was mentioning earlier in the, in the intro, it's just one of those things that I don't think we forget about offensive lines, but it's not something that we that's in the forefront of our minds. Yeah. It's not like you can go out and start an offensive line in fantasy football, so it's not one that we consider. Not but yet. during the games, it becomes a talking point. In analysis, it becomes a talking point. So what are the, I guess, the, the common mis- misconceptions or the, what are the things that we just don't tend to really think about when it comes to considering offensive lines that, I guess, are just things that you know or things that you've seen that just aren't, are, I guess, a common discussion point when it comes to talking about O-lines? Yeah, I just think the amount of work that the offensive linemen do outside of just getting in front of someone, they're not just these big oafs getting in people's way. The things they have to do coming out of the huddle, trying to read the defensive personnel, pre-snap piecing together the defensive formation trying to figure out who's coming um who's about to back off into coverage trying to take any subtle hints you can from the safety or a blitzing linebacker whatever half the time they're over in the three-point stance they can they don't have any sort of movement and they're trying to read what personnel is on the field across the ball um 
just getting off the ball as a unit, something that is really underrated on the road, especially if you're a road team, if you're Arizona going into Seattle, being able to get the snap count as a tackle when you can't see the ball, but your defender can see the ball and you can't hear the quarterback. So you're already a half a step behind any edge rusher as a tackle, assuming you're playing a, a decent team, not a quiet stadium. Right. Um, well, the game gets more and more intricate. It becomes less and less common to know who you're actually blocking to know if the guy is actually coming in, if they're going to drop into coverage or whatever. Yeah. I'm just, there, I mean, there's a laundry list of stunts and games. The defensive front is going to pull on you. And it's something that's just overlooked. And I guess because it just happens so quickly, I mean, this is, I mean, cause a uh, NFL play is over in well, like three seconds, four seconds or something like that. So oh, like right. all, these, all these things happen so quickly. It's hard to, for us to, I guess, really, think about how quickly these guys have to process what they're seeing, how they're moving and trying to defend against these safeties, linebackers, and you know, trying to either get to the quarterback or stop the rusher and all that. So, I mean, that's, that's a huge point. I hadn't really, I guess, considered the things that were, cause I guess once the ball is snapped, that's what we as fantasy managers and the, we is just like fans of football. We're watching where the ball is going, mm-hmm. we're watching where, the quarterback is, you know, where he's looking or where the running back is trying to like either bend, bang, bounce, like to get through and make it to the next level. So, but really those guys, that's just, you know, the, I guess the, in the trenches, you know, those, those, you know, common phrases that we use for describing it. We just don't typically think about that. Exactly. I mean, there's just so much in the five to 10 seconds leading up to the snap that we usually attribute to the quarterback and the quarterback's doing a lot of hard work there too, but, Typically, it's the center that's calling out uh, blitz formations. And mm-hmm. when you hear them yelling about the mic or whatever, they're trying to find who the middle linebacker is, what gap mm-hmm. they might be coming through. That's all the offensive line. Yeah, so it's really interesting to actually take a second and look at the offensive line on some plays. I know it's very difficult. I played offensive line in high school, did a lot of film once I got to varsity. I think it's fun to watch. I don't, some people, some people are just like, you know, I'm going to watch the ball. I'm going to watch what gives my fantasy team points, but that's what we're here. That's the point we're here to make. These guys are getting your fantasy team points. And mm-hmm. actually my brother played in a fantasy league where you could draft offensive lines. You started two offensive lines a week oh, and you had, you had head coaches as well. So here, when it comes to fantasy, why do we care about offensive line in terms of fantasy points by position, kind of sell us on why it matters for the quarterback, the receivers, the running back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, simply if the offensive line can't do their job, our fantasy points are going to stay real close to zero. Fundamental parts of the play depend on an offensive line's strength, quickness, awareness, ability to identify who's blitzing, who is looping to catch you off guard, kill the quarterback. I mean, clearly sacks are terrible for (laughs) everyone involved in the play. So that's number one. Um, I look at sack rate and I look at QB hits allowed uh, when I'm looking at numbers first and foremost, when I'm trying to judge how good an offensive line has done metrically, there's been a lot of studies on, I mean, there's not a quarterback in the league who has a better QBR when under pressure than when clean. So simply put, if you're putting pressure on the quarterback, you're lowering the, lowering the completion percentage that's going to kill your wide receiver and your tight end, being able to get explosive runs out of your running back I mean, it'll happen on broken plays sometimes, but that's usually what you're seeing in college. You don't see a lot of broken plays go for long rushes in the NFL, unless it's the quarterback scrambling or it's 
Russell Wilson, who we'll talk about later. But typically a running back's not going to go very far if the defense is blowing up your offensive line. Um, if they're able to set that edge, even the quick scat backs aren't going anywhere either. And that's typically mm-hmm. when those scat backs are losing yardage because they can't get around the edge. Yeah, and when you have a crappy offensive line, it usually keeps you a tight end um, right up in the line so you don't get to see. Blocking. Yeah, exactly. They have to block and help out their crappy offensive tackles. So you see David, <laughs> David and Joku helping out the Browns' not-so-great tackles and not lining up in the slot or out wide anymore. So it really affects everyone in the offense. And we saw a lot of blocking out of Rob Gronkowski. That was, he's always been a, a great blocker, an elite blocker, but it seemed like he was blocking a lot more last year. And it seems like maybe looking back, that might've been a little bit of a sign of what was to come. I also think it's, it's really interesting to add that you said you don't really see a lot of broken plays go for any sort of gain, which is why we try so hard to isolate the good running backs with things like I alluded to earlier with yards after contact, elusiveness ratings, and that's all great. But we also have to remind ourselves that, you're not going to go very far on a broken play. Nick Chubb has uh, great yards after contact. He's a really good running back. But when the Browns offensive line isn't clicking, he's still not going to be productive regardless of how good it is. It's a simple numbers game at that point. It's one against 11. And if you don't have six severe guys helping you out, you're not really going to proceed. So that was a that was a great point to make is that Maybe we spend less time trying to figure out the running backs that are doing it themselves and more time trying to figure out, like, uh, say, Todd Gurley, he's an amazing running back, historically good, right? But if you watch some of the games last year, those holes you could have drove a Mack truck through. Now, that's not a knock on Gurley, right? But that means that we got an amazing running back, but also an amazing situation, which is why he was on pace for historic fantasy points before, you know, getting injured. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And uh, most running backs that we consider to be great also happen to have a really good offensive line. Sure. And I think that correlation is usually pretty easy to understand. If you're a great running back, but there's no holes, you're just a normal running back. Here's the average. Right. And I think that, uh, and to, I guess to add to the, I guess the comedic level that we see on Twitter of the running backs don't matter argument. I mean, some of the work that the tweet threads that Ben Baldwin has put together kind of highlighting the offensive play, offensive line play, I guess it's, uh, it's, it's twofold, right? It's one to highlight, you know, that these running backs, like while they can be quote unquote, like generational talents, they're not doing it on their own. Now, in some cases you might have a Saquon Barkley or, uh, you know, Todd, or even Todd Gurley in some cases where they are able to create on their own, but there is a, I guess there's a symbiotic relationship between those two, between those two, uh, I guess, positions between the running back and the offensive line where mm-hmm. you have to take them both into account. It's not just all of the running backs talent. Of course, some of them, they have to have the vision in order to see the gap and see the hole and run through it. I mean, they're not they're not all Trent Richardson where they have the gap on one side, but they tried to run into like their four to five offensive linemen to the left. Isaiah Crowell. <laughs> Isaiah Crowell, exactly. I mean, they don't all function that way. So there, there is some I mean, there's some credit that we have to assign to the running back because they're the ones that are running the damn ball. But there also has to be some credit assigned to the offensive line that make the holes available for them to run through, that make the lanes available for them to run through. So it's just there's a balance. And there's always a balance that we have to take into account when we're looking at that type of production. I got into a real live 
running backs don't matter conversation yesterday and it was terrible it was everything you ever thought it would be i hated it my wife asked me how i like nights i said yeah i like the people i like the shift everything i just have to make sure not to argue with these two dudes about fantasy football she's like that's not gonna happen i was like no i can do it i'm just not gonna pay attention when they talk about it someone started talking about football yesterday and I laid into him about how bad running backs don't matter. And that's a philosophy that blows people's minds. They're like, what do you mean running backs don't matter? There's Adrian Peterson. You know, I'm like, okay, okay, there's Adrian Peterson. Yeah. Yeah. It don't matter. Like, oh, yeah, what about Barry Sanders? Like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 25 years ago. You're right. Yes. Yeah. They matter. Barry yeah. Sanders was amazing. Right. Yeah, it used to matter. Right. But who was the guy that was, you know, running through open lanes for the Rams during the playoffs? Was that Todd Gurley? No, that was C.J. Anderson. That's no. why. <laughs> That's just. I mean, for me, it's it's wild because you can see. I mean, we we all know both sides of that of that argument. We've mm-hmm. seen actual like the the generational talents like come through. Mm-hmm. We've watched them play, or you can go back and look at some of the highlights of, of any of the greats, like the really good running backs, like the you know, we were just talking about Barry Sanders. I mean, any any of those guys, Dickerson, like well, so on and so forth, but. At the same time, again, we know that there has there's there's some they're not always able to create on their own. Mm-hmm. There has to be some lanes for them to run through. There has to be some sort of a you know ability on the offensive line to create for them, or at least to give them that that little edge so that they can you know continue to create after that. And I think why that's why a lot of the metrics that um, folks like football outsiders have put together where you now are able to assign some credit like to the offensive line so you can see that interaction. You can see that there's you, know, you can assign some credit to the offensive line for what they're able to do for the for the push or for the amount of space they're able to give the running back or the amount of time that they're able to give the quarterback so that they do have the ability to you know read all of the the receivers routes and see what the coverage is and all that. So if we know that let's say guys like Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Philip Rivers, the older guys, the less mobile guys, like they need to have that time. Mm-hmm. If we know that year over year, they're going to be these like perennial top 12 quarterbacks. Well, it's not because they're scrambling and running for two to 300 or 400 yards, like over the entire season. We know that because they have the time in order to process what they see on the field. And that's because of the offensive line. So like offensive line is not just about rushing production. It's also about the time that it affords the quarterback to look across the field, see, you know, for Tom Brady, it's Julian Edelman, like sprinting across the middle of the field or Gronkowski going up the seam or, you know, something like that, where it's just, we, again, we focus on the person with the ball. We don't really attribute that or that time that they have to the six or seven guys that are involved in essentially car collisions, you know, up in front of them for, 60, 70 plays, you know, each, each and every Sunday or Thursday, I guess, or Monday night. Yeah. Or, or Wednesday or Saturday. Or- I know as, as whatever the, like, as the league would have it, I mean, they would probably have them playing on like Friday nights and then, you know, Wednesdays and like, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah with no buys. No buys. Yeah. I tried yeah. to explain to this dude. I, I said, yes, there are good running backs. The running backs don't matter movement is not to say that there are not good running backs. Right. It's to say that Todd Gurley is really good and Kareem Hunt's really good. But then Damian Williams was good. Then C.J. Anderson was good. And then Matt Breda was really good. So the point is, why do you pay them? That's what they could not grasp. You do not 
pay them. That's yes. why when Adam Gase, crazy Adam Gase, takes over, the first thing he wants to do is trade Le'Veon Bell because it drove him nuts that they spent all that money on a running back when, frankly, Elijah McGuire probably would have been similar in fantasy. Right. And I think that's the thing that most folks can't wrap their minds around is that it's not to say that the running back talent is what we're devaluing. It's the the amount of money that you pay them. It's just if that if that talent is replaceable on a weekly basis, then why are we giving them or why are they being given the, these massive contracts and affecting the cap so much that you can't really invest in the positions that really do affect the outcome of games. We're having a good offensive line like we're talking about right now is useful or having a good defense or a good, you know, a good edge rusher, like, you know, play, you know, players or positions that really affect the game. And if you don't have the ability to invest in those positions, because you're now paying a running back, you know, uh, they're on a $50 million contract. It makes it impossible for you to really invest in that. And yeah, so like, the Cowboys, yeah, I mean the, the Cowboys, yeah, have, yeah that's going to be hard. Invest in Zeke, they can't, right? I mean, that's going to be hard. This is a prime example of running backs don't matter, and we get to see it live, and it's going to be awesome because they're going to sign Dak and they're going to sign Amari, and Zeke's going to walk, and all these fans' minds are going to blow because they're like, Zeke gets a trillion yards and a trillion touchdowns. It's like he also gets suspended, and Rod Smith also does similarly well, or Alfred Morris. So there, it's going to turn the whole thing upside down. Absolutely. Tony Pollard is about to get a fifteen hundred yard season twenty twenty, yep. pretty much. So go pick him up on Can't all wait. your dynasty squads right yeah. now. But, like, but speaking of that, I mean, those are the things that we really want to figure out. Is like which teams? I guess should we should we be concerned about some teams like or should, because of their either their offensive lines or because of just the way that they're. I guess the way that their team is structured, like if it's not for it being, you know, running back dependent as we've been focusing on right now, but should we worry about the offensive line for the, the person, you know, for their, for the guy under center? So as I mentioned earlier, so like the, the older uh, quarterbacks, so the Drew Brees of the world, the Phillip Rivers, the Tom Brady's, I mean, even I guess oh, Ben Roethlisberger for sure. And I guess Matt Ryan to some degree as he's kind of getting up there as well. So are there some teams with some of those like, you know, poor, like weaker offensive lines that we uh, that we really have to worry about? Or for in some cases like Houston and Seattle, where you have those guys, the still like relatively mobile quarterbacks that we really shouldn't care at all about them? Yeah, I think absolutely. And on both cases, honestly, some of them we should worry about and some of them we shouldn't. In terms of all the older gentlemen that you named, they all have like top 10, at least top 15 lines. So they're investing in their linemen, knowing that they have an aging commodity that they'd like to keep behind there for the next three or four years. Houston and Seattle are not in that same boat, at least not in their pass protection. But I think if anyone is uniquely qualified to not get murdered by the defense, it's Russell Wilson and Deshaun Watson. Just looking at their pressure scrambles, so how many scrambles they had or chose to go out in the last few years, because of pressure, Russell Wilson's landed or third, first, and seventh most scrambles in the last three seasons. He was seventh last year, and Tom Cable left the year before, so some sort of correlation going on there. Yeah, don't know and how that worked out. Yeah, right? Huh, that's weird. Protection got better when Tom Cable left. But uh, And then last year, Deshaun Watson led the league with 22 pressure scrambles. Having his little bit of injury history, I'd be more concerned about him. Uh, the Texans did get a couple of 
dudes in the first two rounds that went with two small school guys for whatever reason, they did get jumped over for um, Dalton. I Ruth. forget who, but in that like, pretty much why like Houston wound up canning their GM like almost immediately after the draft. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. So I'd be a little worried about Deshaun. I mean, I would be worried about Russell Wilson if he hadn't shown that he can still produce for the last seven years. I don't know how he does it. Um, he's just a, a madman. Um, but yeah, uh, Josh Rosen is leaving one bad situation and going to another bad situation. So I don't know if we'll ever see what Josh Rosen could be. Because if he fails in Miami too, but I mean, I don't know. The third team is going to pay a second-round pick to grab him. The Arizona Cardinals offensive line is still terrible, mm-hmm. but they could scheme away from that. Um, it's interesting that Texas Tech had one offensive lineman drafted in the last decade, and they allowed the fourth lowest sack rate in Division One football. So they wow. didn't have any good offensive linemen, and they still were doing just fine. So I guess that's a plus for Kyler because yeah. that offensive line is still not good, but maybe he'll be all right. It's interesting that they're going to have to move towards a, a quicker scheme in the first year, which is kind of something that puts me on Christian Kirk and Andy Isabella the most. Of course, drafts, draft capital – gets you off with Keem Butler a little bit, but I think this offense is going to have to be built around speed the first year. Cause you're right. They, I think he really had to sit down with himself and say, am I going to build my air raid offense this year? Or am I going to build my offensive line? And I, I think he might've done the right thing by getting all those wide receivers, because if he built his offensive line this year, he wouldn't have been able to do everything that he needs to do with the air raid offense. So if you put Kyler in a watered down air raid offense in his first year, because you drafted offensive linemen and now you don't have the receivers on the outside that really are, um, that really fit your air raid, then that might've stunted him a little. So I think we might see in year two, I mean, if they're, if they're being smart, a huge offensive line boost, if some of these receivers hit, so hopefully they just get rid of the ball quick. I, I, I yeah. think that's what Kyler's going to be really good at is he's smart. He's a smart dude. I think that he's going to get rid of the ball quickly or scramble. They're going to have to move the pocket. But yeah. you're absolutely right. That offensive line did not get any better. So with the new out of Cincinnati him at all, because I was really excited with the new head coach coming in, and I think Andy Dalton's a little better than people give him credit for. How do you feel about them? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of stoked just being a Cincinnati fan in general to have a left tackle that we could put there that was going to start learning. Um, he already had good numbers in college, see if any of that translates. But at this point, I don't really see Cincinnati any different than the ceiling of 2018. They still got Bobby Hart at the right tackle. They paid him for literally no reason because he's large. So I don't know if I'm fading Cincinnati, but I think the numbers that they put up last year are going to be the ceiling. I'm not as excited about Mixon as I was a month or two ago. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen Dalton be mediocre to awful behind a not very good offensive Mm -hmm. line. He hasn't put up good numbers since they let uh, Whitworth and Kevin Zeitler leave. Again, pretty questionable that they wouldn't pay them, and now they're paying Bobby Hart. But I don't know that I'm fading the whole offense. I'm just not as stoked. Um, I know I've seen A.J. Green going in the fourth round now. I think that's a mistake. Later than that, man. I've seen him. And Scott Fishbowl, I've seen him go fourth or fifth, yeah. Yeah. It's too late. 
Like, I'm not excited about the Bengals offense, but come on. It's AJ Green. Come on. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's AJ Green. Come on. I know he's 30 or 30 and a 10th or whatever, but come on. He's not done yet. Yeah. And to add just the news out of Cincinnati is that they lost their first round left tackle. Oh, yeah. I probably should have mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was it labrum surgery? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. A torn labrum or something torn like that. And gone for the season. Yeah. Back by next. Yeah. So con- to just continuing the curse of first round picks for Cincinnati. Yeah. Whether yeah. It's, yeah. They're adding up. Yeah, I mean it's John Brown or what was it, Abuehi or yeah, what, a couple years ago and John then, Ross. yeah, John Ross and so it's just oh yeah. man, that's depressing. Good yeah, I don't have a team anymore. But yeah. let's talk about my old team real quick because mm-hmm. the Washington Redskins offensive line has been on paper top five for the past few years, but when it comes to actually playing, they don't. So on film, they're bad. Uh, they were taking guys almost literally off the street last year. So what's up yeah. with the Washington Redskins offensive line health and how are they going to do this year? Uh, I mean, at this point they seem healthy. seems like they have everyone in place except for Trent Williams, who is healthy, but is demanding a trade, which is not something you see from an offensive lineman too often. That's usually yeah. a running back wide receiver diva move, but Trent Williams doesn't want to be in Washington anymore. Um, their health last year was just miserable. They started 11 dudes across the offensive line. Nine linemen played over 200 snaps. It's real hard to build chemistry or strengthen the base of your teammates when you don't know who you're playing next to day in and day out. I mean, if everyone's healthy and no one gets traded, they have a lot of really good pieces on there, including Williams, assuming he's coming back. He's seven straight Pro Bowls. Uh, Chase Rouillet, that's how you pronounce that, right? Mm-hmm. Rouillet? Yeah, I think so. Um, and then uh, that's their center. And then the right guard, Brandon Schreff, has been hes a beast. Rock solid mm-hmm. since being drafted in 2015. Stud. If everything goes right, this could seriously be a top five offensive line in the league. But they just, who knows if everything's going to be there. It's just weird to have someone holding out on the line. I don't, I can't think of another time that I've seen that. I don't blame them, though. They've, they've definitely treated his contracts poorly. But this leads me to talk about something else. I know I spent way too much time on Darius Geis in my life. So I took him way too early in Scott Fishbowl. I'll, let's get that off my chest right now. <laughs> way too early. I did not realize he would still be there in the 7th or 8th. I took him at 5.02. But I think the Trent Williams thing has to do a little bit with that because it is going to be a big difference if Trent Williams leaves. He's mm-hmm. the top left tackle, sometimes the best left tackle in the league. It is going to be a big difference. So the situation does look muddy. Trent Williams leaves. They bring back Adrian Peterson, blah, blah, blah. It looks muddy right now. But couldn't you see in the second month of the NFL saying, how on earth would this guy not going in the third round? I mean, if Trent Williams was staying and we didn't worry about Adrian Peterson, he'd have to be a lock for the third round, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lead back on a team with a top five offensive line like put those pieces together yeah that's a that's a third round pick any day of the week yeah so i mean it has to work out that way of course and i'm the the darius guys truther so somebody else without bias jump in here but i mean we're gonna we're gonna look at this guy if he took over the offense and i'm not sure he does to be honest with you because jay gruden's not super smart so i could see adrian peterson getting way too much run 
But if he comes out and looks as electric as we know he can be, why do you give Adrian Peterson the ball? Same thing happened with Alvin Kamara. Alvin Kamara was a huge surprise. And then they had to look at Adrian Peterson and say, hey, sorry, dude. I mean, we have to give this, this guy the ball. And you know Adrian Peterson wasn't washed because he came out last year and he still produced. So mm-hmm. we're talking about offensive line here. If we're going to say that we have a top five offensive line where, I, I like I said, the last three years, they should have been a top five offensive line. It's been injury, and they've got everyone intact again. Then you're getting a running back that could be a bell cow, that could be behind a top five offensive line. Yeah, it's volatile, but if you guys are actually going to get him in the seventh when I took him in the fifth, that's a huge steal, man. Well, you got to embrace that volatility, too. It's something that um, I really learned hearing you guys talk about it over the over the last year or so is it, you need to inject some risk into your team, mm-hmm. especially if it's coming in the seventh round. And I mean, what's the worst that happens? You spend your seventh round pick and Geis somehow never sees the field again. It's a seventh round pick. Who cares? Sure. Um, especially in something like Scott Fishbowl or in a best ball league where you're looking for the highest ceiling play you can anyways, since SFB has mm-hmm. 1,200 teams in it. Like you have yeah. to have some sort of risk in your team or you're just going to end up 500 and that's not going to do you any good. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I ended up going uh, undefeated last year, and I was starting Adam Humphreys. I started Matt Brade all year. Got lucky with John Connor, but that's not what you have to do in, in Scott Fishbowl. So I've been going all volatility this year because the only way you win with 1,200 people is have like three or four random dudes hit. And like you discussed on the volatility, before we get to this film section, you, you if you take those volatile players, you can just take their backups later like – his his floor is still going to be productive. He's not he's not going to not see the field. It might be a 50-50 if Jay Gruden wants to continue being stupid, but <laughs> if, if it is 50-50, you still have production in the seventh. But you could also get Adrian Peterson later. So if it's what's more likely, which is Adrian Peterson plays the first two games, he got hurt every other game last year, by the way. So you're at least going to get every other game of Darius Geis being a workhorse. How many times does Darius guys have to be the every other game workhorse before he's just the workhorse? Yeah, we'll see. But take your Adrian Peterson or take your Chris Thompson if you think that his workload's going to increase when one of these guys goes down. That's what we do. That's what I've always done with Jarvis Landry. I take that volatile wide receiver way too late because people are afraid to take him. That's your Allen Robinson this year. And just mm-hmm. take a dude like Jarvis Landry that's going to get your solid 12 every week, but then sometimes he'll get you your 20. That's how you embrace volatility in this thing. Yeah, I think so. And when it comes to, I guess, just talking specifically about the the washed offensive line, I think that, yeah, if if you think that they're going to come back healthy, because I think towards the end of last year, Vernon Davis was actually like having to being asked to block like quite a bit in order to in order to keep that continuity on the line, because he understood like most of the blocking schemes because he's been in the league for so long. But if you do have some of that continuity now, or you have some of those guys coming back, and actually with their uh, with the new guys that they've actually been able to draft, um, I think that you'll you'll be able to see that uh, that offense be able to, I guess, to turn it around a little bit. I mean, I don't think they'll be able to get back to where they were maybe a couple seasons ago, but at least become something that's stable. So if you have and you already have uh, a new uh, rookie quarterback in Dwayne Haskins, you're going to need an offensive like you're going to need a talented running back like at his side in order to kind of, you know, 
kickstart his career as well. And not to say that Adrian Peterson couldn't do that, but stylistically speaking, wouldn't you want a running back back there that can do pretty much a little bit of everything? And I think that speaks more to Darius Geis than it does to Adrian Peterson. So I think there's just more there's more to it than just saying that Darius guys can t- you know can shoulder that load because it's it's more than just is more than just the running back situation in Washington. You've got a new quarterback, you've got new receivers, you've got uh, you know more talent on the offensive line, and so I think Darius guys as a piece, I think he is one of those I think dynamic running backs that you could probably you could put him in as an all purpose back or at least he can become that all purpose back. But in the context of that offense, he's the guy that you need in order to this, to step forward and make that offense run. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's the case. I've actually had the chance to talk with uh, Wes Martin, the guard that they drafted in the fourth round or fifth round. Um, I talked to him actually in uh, actually, yeah, last month, like shortly uh, after that or shortly before he left for a rookie training camp uh, because he's from he's from West Milton. So a city that's just a town outside of Dayton. And uh, since he's from the area, he knew uh, like a mutual friend. So we started talking and whatever. And uh, I mean, great guy. And he was talking about going and meeting like, uh, yeah, Flowers and uh, Brett, Brandon Sheriff. I forget. I forget mm-hmm. the last name or how to pronounce it correctly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But starting to like talking with those guys and just learning how to, I guess, you know, integrate into like the, you know, pro style like type offense. So coming from Indiana and, uh, you know, got working from there, like into the pros, it's just, you're just saying it's different. I mean, you're starting to learn more about blocking schemes that like, while a lot of it, you know, the stuff they learn in college is something that you can transition. There's just nuance to it and things that you pick up along the way. So I'm hoping that that's something that we'll see or be able to see like once they all get out on the field. But I guess the, my last question before we get into, I guess the film discussion. So we're talking about just Washington in general, but let's talk about like one of the, like the better offensive lines. Uh, so we've got like the LA Rams and like the Saints, but both of them have kind of sustained some losses. I mean, the the Saints they lost uh, Max Unger; he's retired. Um, and then for for the LA Rams, I think it was a uh, Saffold they lost, and I thought they lost like one of their other interior offensive linemen, but I, I could be mistaken. But those are those losses enough? Uh, are they big enough that we should be concerned about their the offense in general? Or do you think that they have enough talent behind them that you're not too concerned about them at all? Uh, Start with New Orleans because I think it's a kind of quick one. I'm not too concerned about um, Nick Easton plugging in there for Max Unger. Unger had a couple of down, not bad years, but for his standard, a couple of down years anyways. So him moving on and them inking uh, Nick Easton from uh, the Vikings. It's not that big of a deal. I think they'll continue on pretty well there. Um, all their main pieces are still healthy and they're they're still ready to go. LA, I'm more concerned about. They still have their tackles, which is good. It's hard to have two average, let alone two great tackles at the same time. They've got um, Whitworth and uh, Rob Havenstein, I believe. <laughs> but they lost Roger Saffold and John Sullivan. Uh, Whitworth almost retired at the end of the year, which would have been terrible. Uh, that would have been a huge detriment to the Rams' offensive line and just their offense in general. That's a lot of a lot of experience and a lot of strength to lose from your offensive line. The Saffold one is pretty big. Saffold was a great guard last year. He's been a great guard his whole career. Um, they've got someone. They've got Brian Allen plugging in for him, a, a fourth rounder from last year. So we'll see there. 
filling John Sullivan's shoes at center is probably the easier thing to do. He didn't have a very great year last year. But a little bit worried about the Rams. The Cowboys, kind of the same thing along the lines of Washington, is they have a great offensive line. They have a lot of injuries. Travis Frederick missed 2018 with Gillian Barr syndrome, which is also something I'd never heard of. Uh, oh, he, yeah. He was going numb in all of his extremities, and he was starting to lose his nerves, so he couldn't feel mm-hmm. anything. So he didn't play last year because that seems pretty serious. Uh, apparently he's fine now, though. So, all right. That's all right. A- Free. I didn't know that was something you could just quickly recover from. Yeah, it just takes 12 months of yeah Shoot. recovery, I guess. I guess he's fine. Uh, we'll see. He's slated to start, and if he's back to normal, that'll be a big boon to them. And then Tyron Smith was injured last year, but he's been injured all the last three years, so there's not really anything different there. If, sorry, anything different there. Um, so the Cowboys are kind of intact, but kind of not. Kind of along the lines of the Redskins. And I, I remember actually with uh, Tyron Smith that the people were running, I guess he was missing enough games that people were starting to look at his splits, like Dak splits like in and out. And also the same thing for Zeke as well. Like how missing such a, I guess an important part of that line. Cause he's there, but it was left guard or tackle. I forget. Left tackle. Yeah. yeah left the, tackle. the splits are pretty extreme uh, with him and in and out. The yardage is, it's like actually a perfect eight game sample or it was taken <laughs> when there was a perfect eight game sample of him out. Uh, the yardage was like 21 yards a game different, which is not a big deal. But their scoring offense was a full six points less oh, wow. every game that he missed. So if extrapolated over 16 games, it would be 16 less touchdowns for the offense Yeah, if Tyron Smith were to miss an entire year. That's it's huge. Ridiculous. I didn't know it was that significant. Hmm. Tackle counting for a touchdown a game. That's crazy. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's, that's some good war there. Yeah, I had, I had no idea. I mean, that's that's a perfect like if his, his agent should just take like a picture of that Rotoviz like like split and just like yeah. take that into negotiations to be like pay him. Yeah, like look at this and then pay him this. Yeah, this is how many games that you guys lost by less than six points when he wasn't playing. Oh man, yeah, yeah. your agent right now. Pay my client right now. You guys would have been fifteen and one exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I say, yeah, but you're injured all the time, and he's going to say, oh, I didn't <laughs> oh think yeah, it's like a crap. Well, just give us like half of what we're asking for, then we'll be good. <laughs> we'll leave you guys alone. Uh, but the last part that we want to do is kind of the segue into, I guess, the, the film discussion is that, I mean, for some of these offensive lines, I mean, again, we're, we're what we've covered so far is one, the, the interaction, like the slow motion, it, like if you take a play and look at it kind of, you know, piece by piece as you see these players go. We want to focus in on the offensive line and the things that are happening. And so just to kind of start us off, uh, we wanted to look at the at the Rams first and foremost because when it comes to uh, when it comes to Todd Gurley, or whether it was Todd Gurley or whether it was CJ Anderson, I mean their one of their I guess their big thing was that they were able to have these like wide open rushing lanes for either of them to run through. Now, we want to see the same thing for Daryl Henderson, but with the losses that we were just discussing on the offensive line, I guess you do have some concern about whether or not we'll be able to see plays like we're seeing now with Todd Gurley, just the split for the lane that he's able to run through. It almost looks like it's five yards wide. Yeah, so I guess talk to us about like what you're expecting to see now in 2019, I guess with some of the I guess changes that they're going to have to make on the line. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the first thing that pops out at me is Whitworth, who is sticking around. He just allows um, 
carry Hyder's mom momentum to just drop himself to the ground about a half a second after the ball is snapped, his face down on the ground. Right. Pretty hilarious. And then he moves to the second level here and seals off this safety, which takes the backside of the hole and pushes it even wider than it already was. Um, and then right next to Whitworth at the beginning of this play is Saffold, who did move, who had such an incredible year last year. Um, he sees he's got no one to block on the line, so he goes immediately out to the second level, takes care of Vander Esch, number 55 here, and just seals off the front side. So between Whitworth and Saffold, that is where that gargantuan hole comes from, and it just leaves Gurley with um, this free safety to beat, and he does an easy job of that. Just getting to the outside. So some of this is Gurley. He beats that free safety, but really Gurley didn't have to do anything until he was nine yards down the field. And, and Whitworth was still blocking nine yards down the yeah. field. Exactly. <laughs> That's a, so we understand you guys can't see this, but we're talking through the film of Todd Gurley breaking a, a long touchdown. And you this is a perfect example of why Whitworth was so important to that offense because that first guy was not Whitworth's responsibility and the you see Higby pulling on the backside mm-hmm. he would have he would have taken that guy but Whitworth being so savvy takes this guy to the ground moves to the next level the person who was supposed to tackle Todd Gurley is who Whitworth is blocking probably 10 yards down the field so Todd Gurley doesn't get touched until 10 yards down the field and that's because Whitworth takes a guy to the ground who wasn't even on his responsibility gets on his responsibility blocks him 10 yards down the field and then you've got Todd Gurley one-on-one against the safety which is on every running play what you want you're trying yeah. to get because there's 11 players and 11 players and you have a quarterback which means the safety's supposed to make the tackle every perfectly blocked play or most so you you have an, an amazing Todd Gurley, but what did he have to do on this play? You had to be fast. The hole was five yards wide. Whitworth did so much extra in this one play, and then he's blocking 10 yards down the field, so the guy who's supposed to tackle him just can't get to him. It, it's amazing to me how we can take you saying Whitworth's important to a team and then come look at it and be like, oh, my God, this guy just made this whole play. But all you're going to see on ESPN is Todd Gurley scoring a 40-yard touchdown. Mm-hmm. It's such a it's a perfect clip to personify that. Yeah, and sometimes that's uh, – unfortunately, that as I was making the point earlier, that's sometimes like all that we focus on because as as fantasy owners, as, as you know, dynasty managers – that's all that we see. That's all that we really care about are the things that, you know, once the ball is being, uh, once the ball is in motion, that's what we're tracking. So moving on, I mean, we're not just considered, we're not just concerned with rushing production. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the big things when it comes to offensive line is how the, as how the uh, running back is able to move either, you know, through the line and up to the next level. And Todd Gurley was a great example of that, but looking on the other side, or I guess on the same side is that how's, how does the quarterback actually, you know, how are they able to work within that system? And so looking at, you know, the same team and looking at what Jared Goff was able to do, I guess for the most part until they got to the Super Bowl. Uh, I mean, talk to us about, I guess, the importance of the offensive line when it comes to the, the quarterback and in, in this specific case, the Rams. Absolutely. Uh, this clip makes me a little sad because of my love for um, Daryl Henderson but John Kelly has this phenomenal blitz pickup in this clip. Where, oh, that was John Kelly. I completely yeah, forgot about him. That, that makes me sad. Yeah. I was hoping he would not see the field this year. But you see, he's supposed to be faking the handoff, but his head swivels and he sees this dude, Reddick, come through completely untouched because they're 
right guard, Austin Blythe, is supposed to be pulling and grabbing him, but he's never going to get there in time. So that starts it off. But you see as the play progresses and uh, Goff rolls to his right, the entire offensive line is turning their defensive line counterparts towards the left sideline of the offense. So they're turning all of them and trying to push him that way. So Goff has this clean field of vision here where he's got no one but this uh, 36 here. So we can see all of his three wide receivers all flooding over to the right sideline. He's able to drop this dime right there. Yeah, About he connects with Bobby Woods. Yeah, that's pretty yeah, I'm kind of thrown to all three of them too. Yeah, yeah. here, someone get this. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that they can turn everybody away so they have no momentum carrying them to Goff, and Goff has just nothing to worry about. Like, all of their helmets are turned. They're never going to make a straight uh, pass at him. And then he has all this space. And this is kind of what we're going to This is what we'll have to see a lot of with Kyler Murray this year is mm-hmm. that play action and moving the pocket. And obviously Kyler Murray is going to be a lot better at it than Jared Goff, but um, that that's promising because Sean McVay definitely schemes his offense um, regardless of player ability. He kind of makes the players, in my opinion. So if, if we can see Arizona move the pocket like this and get some play action – Get some quick slants. I think that they'll be just all right without the, that great off or without having a great offensive line. Yeah, they're they're going to be just an exceptional case study. I can't wait to see. Like, I hope they do well because you know it makes football more interesting. I just mm-hmm. I just can't wait. <laughs> it's going to be great or not so much. I'm hoping for the the former. I can't no. help but be a pessimist and think on week one we're just going to look at it and be like. Ah. Sean McVay, he's not gonna. It's not gonna work anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm. I'm hoping that is not the case because I do think with the way that they were able to quickly take over the NFL and become one of these like massive powerhouse franchises, I'm hoping they're able to maintain that. But there's a quick question for you, Justin. Um, so what I've been hearing, or at least a narrative that I've heard, is that um, with the losses on the offensive line, there's a chance that they wind up moving to two tight end sets a little bit more. Um, so they wind up using, cause Tyler Higby, we know is a, is a good blocker and he could be, he can be pulled in more. And then they could also bring in Gerald Everett as well. So is but, there, I guess there's, is there any credence to the idea that instead of trying to, I guess the way that they could plug up some of the holes on their offensive line is to, now bring in so you have Everett and Higby on the field at the same time, and since because Everett is such a he's like he's more of a move tight end than a blocker, that will wind up decreasing the amount of uh, amount of snaps for somebody like Robert Woods who traditionally plays in the slot, because the slot or at least a big slot role would be for somebody like Cooper Cup because he offers more tactical value. So if you have Brandon Cooks and Josh Reynolds on the outside that kind of bumps Robert Woods to the bench because you need some of some of the players that I was just listing out like the Cooper Cups, the Gerald Everett's and the Tyler Higby's got the guys those bigger guys that are you need to have on the field in order to block and or maybe you know sprint out real quick and do an out route or a quick slant or something like that to get out. I mean is there any credence to that idea? I think it's possible, but I don't think it's likely just because of where the holes are coming from on the Rams offensive line. So they still have the two tackles and really what you're hoping to do when you keep your tight end in line is to help the tackle 
either by getting a chip on the way out or by just clearly staying in and trying to handle the outside right end or left end or whatever. Um, if anything, they might just keep running backs in more often to help out with the center and getting chips on uh, defensive tackles and whatnot. Um, I think kind of to go along with what Adam was talking about earlier, they might want more running backs. I'm sorry. They might want more wide receivers on the field in case of pressure so they can get the ball out quicker. So that might keep keep Woods on the field in the slot. Interesting. So be a nice outlet. Right. Just be, if the Rams were struggling on the tackle side of things, I, I think that would be more likely that they would want tight, more tight ends on the field. But they still yeah, have Havenstein and a Whitworth out there. Okay. No, I like that. And that's that helps out because I couldn't find a, I guess, a, a counter argument to that. But now that you've put that in perspective as to where the tight ends would actually be blocking, if they still already have two tackles, uh, intact tackles, and really their issues are more interior than exterior, then I guess there'd be less of a need to actually start pulling in or like having more two tight end sets or having the a lesser need for somebody like Robert Woods to be out on the field because as of right now, I guess if you're looking at things from a redraft perspective as folks start to get into that mode as the season starts to ramp up, I mean, all three of the Rams wide receivers are almost going within this like within a round of each other, like within yeah. picks of each other. And so if you're trying to invest in that offense, I mean, that Jared Goff is essentially like he's supporting three wide receivers. I mean, three top tier wide receivers that you're going to have to spend a decent amount of draft capital on. So if there's not really too much of a concern, then it kind of seems like their ADP is almost almost worth it from a, I guess, from a, I guess, draft standpoint value. Yeah. It's hard okay. to choose those three. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, they're, I mean, they're all, I mean, excellent receivers. And I guess the really the only concern is with Cup because of the injury and how, how late it happened in the season. But still, I mean, if they're assuming they're healthy and assuming they're all out on the field, then these are, I mean, this is an offense that you want to invest in. And these are receivers that you want to invest in just based off of their talent. And of course, the offensive situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's move from a I guess a great offensive situation or a offensive line situation to I guess a lesser one I mean Seattle is known for having their poor offensive line but at the same time I mean they're, they're still able to get it done somehow I guess Russell Wilson I think the best line that I heard I think it came from JJ Zacharyson that Russell Wilson he breaks math because there's really no there, there's really no reason as to why he's able to you know sustain such a ridiculous touchdown rate like why his uh, why his quarterback efficiency like his adjusted yards per attempt or like is one of the best like one of the best ever uh, it's just it doesn't make sense and despite the fact that he was uh, pretty much tethered to one of the most boring offensive coordinators in Brian Schottenheimer I mean they were still able to produce. So I guess we'll first look at the, I guess, the rushing production in uh, looking at just what, a, what Chris Carson was able to do. I know we looked at Rashad Penny at a, uh, in a previous show, but just looking at uh, Chris Carson and that offensive line, I guess point out some of the differences that you see in Seattle than what we saw in L.A. Yeah, for sure. Um, this play is kind of hilarious because all is well that ends well, but – Someone, be it the pulling left guard you see there, J.R. Sweezy, mm-hmm. or Chris Carson have missed their assignment here. And it all ends up fine, which is, you know, mm-hmm. it's all good. But you can see how he's pulling, and there's a gap. The um, I think it's like the C gap here between the tackle and the tight end. 
And that should either be where the left guard is pulling into or he is pulling correctly and Chris Carson's not following him. But luckily this linebacker who's cheating up here runs directly into the gap, tap dances, and falls down. So (laughs) (laughs) so I don't know exactly whose fault that is, but they're lucky that that linebacker just tripped over his own dude. Um, so either Carson was supposed to cut up in that hole or Sweezy was supposed to go up in there and take care of that linebacker. Either way, they still get a good gain here. Um, but it seems like that was almost systemic or I guess a common thing for most of Seattle was that almost the second the ball is snapped, there was either a linebacker waiting in the gap or I guess past the gap in, into Russell Wilson's face, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, they're clearly – leaving him because you can see that this that right tackle there is going straight out to the left to um, seal off that linebacker. That was either Carson or Sweezy, but yeah, those are the reasons why they were not getting that many yards. Yeah, and that's pretty because they're built as a running, run-blocking team. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Chris Carson was supposed to go up the C-gap there following his lead blocker. Now, the, the the guard's responsibility would have been that middle linebacker. Middle linebacker cheated up and tripped on himself. But this is a good example of why uh, we have the elusive rating and the yards after contact because that is certainly Chris Carson going, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> getting, getting not going to go that way. <laughs> you could almost breeze frame it, look at his face, and probably see his eyes and go, I'm going to go where I'm not going to die. So Trent Richardson would have gone right into that guy. Oh, yeah. 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 He would have fallen over the guy falling down. Down like a torpedo. Right. <laughs> Paralyzed this dude. Yeah. For, and for me, I guess the, the other thing when it comes to Seattle is that, I guess, we know, or at least like the fantasy community, and I think just the NFL community at large, or fans of the NFL, like they've recognized that Seattle has always had a poor line. I guess – And this is probably a rhetorical question, but I'm wondering why that hasn't been a larger priority for them in the draft. It just seems like any any particular, I guess, player and or uh, pick that they've made, they they haven't been, I guess, these, I don't know, like five star rated like type recruits or anything like that. Like, you know, these high end uh, talents or prospects like coming out of college. So I guess I don't understand like why they don't wind up, I guess, actively going into trying to address that hole. Or I guess maybe they don't see it as a large priority because they have Russell Wilson under center. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. Well, they just would prefer to run the ball 45 yeah. times a game. So what's the why protect your quarterback when you can just run it down their throats? Exactly. And then hope for stuff like this. Why exactly. him so much money? I think that for some reason they justify not having a great offensive line by paying Russell Wilson so much money. And then they can say, we're paying you all this money to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Which is so dumb because he's so good. It's like, uh, I don't know. People make the reference all the time, but it's like driving a Ferrari at 25 miles per hour. Why do you have a Ferrari? <laughs> Go get a Prius. It'll be more efficient. Why did you pay so much money for Russell Wilson? Just let him go to the Giants. Let them let him play quarterback because Russell Wilson is just handing the ball off a million times. And then the other place, he's just trying not to die. I mean, why draw plays for him when you can just make him uh, play jackpot out there? <laughs> just put him in the sand. Just draw plays <laughs> in the sand in the huddle. Right? I'm going to just like, as I can. You just get underneath it. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because if when you look at what he's had to do, I mean, it just and this is a play. So the so looking at Russell Wilson, this is a play from from 2017. And I will never forget, like, watching this play because it's just like I, I remember, like, almost calling this out in my head, like, as I watch it, like, he's going to do some sort of, like, ballerina move and then he's going to throw it to somebody and it's going to be a big play. And that's what wound up happening. And I'm wondering if Seattle saw so much of this that it's just like, ah, yeah, we'll just go ahead and let Russ do his thing and we won't have to, you know, invest all that much in the offensive line because this is just what he does. And to me, it's just like, if you have one of the most efficient quarterbacks that can, you know, that can one make these, you know, deep ball passes, accurate passes while on the run, but he can also rush for 600 yards, I guess on a whim, why not try to invest in the offensive line? Like why play this game where he's forced to make these, you know, feats of, you know, acrobatic feats in order to generate, you know, first downs. It seems like I don't understand it. This play is hilarious. <laughs> I want to pick on Doug Baldwin because clearly he catches this ball and nearly scores a touchdown. I'm yeah. pretty sure he's supposed to be down blocking and giving a crack on this uh, outside linebacker here. And then oh, he just, as he goes out, yeah. And then he just doesn't. And then when he comes back around, he just slaps him and then <laughs> runs out on this route. He's like, I don't really want to block you. He slaps him and runs yeah. out. I mean, it all ends up all fine and dandy. The it's, I feel like the offensive line did a good job here. I think it, I think this was an RPO. If I'm reading it right, they all block down to the right as if they're run blocking. And then near the end of this play, after Russell Wilson runs backwards 17 yards and then completes the pass, anyways, oh, you can still see a couple of dudes down here trying to keep their block up. Yeah, I Russell, have no idea how he made this pass. Now that you point that out, that is very accurate. Doug Baldwin should have been crack blocking hard, which would have allowed Russell Wilson to just bootleg out to the left. Yeah. Pocket was running it out. So it would have been fine. The person who made this amazing play, which for the listeners is the, the Doug Baldwin on the sideline play after Russell Wilson spun twice and pump faked and everyone knows the play. Um, Russell Wilson was actually supposed to have been down blocking, just like you said, Justin, and he didn't at all. And, he just uh, slapped the dude and stood there. <laughs> right, he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to yeah. make an even bigger play. Yeah. A lot of the pressure came from the guy that Russell Wilson didn't block. And then when Russell – or sorry, that Doug Baldwin didn't block. And then Doug Baldwin said, screw it, ran a random route, didn't even box out his guy. He just, His guy just mistimes the job and Russ, uh, Doug Baldwin completes the pass. This is insane. Yeah. I guess it's one of those plays where you you want to blame the offensive line because again, when we as fantasy managers, it, like when we're just focused on the person with the ball, and then in Russell Wilson's case, I mean, ninety percent of the time he's the one doing the scrambling. You want to blame the offensive line for him doing that. But I guess in this particular case, it's really not the reason why, but it's all the things that are moving in concert, right? It's everything that's that has to be done in a play that we just kind of take, well, one, we either don't know, or we just kind of take for granted, right? Like right. we just, we don't think about the, uh, the additional blocks that have to be made in order for a play to actually proceed. So in this case, yeah. I mean, while it was one of those highlight plays only, I think only one person could, well, I guess two people because not too many people can actually make the catch that Baldwin makes, but only one person could actually probably complete this pass. Like while on the run, twisting and like turning you know completely turning your body 
Like um, only he could have done that. Off of the side of one foot. Right. I mean, there's already throwing it away. I don't, yeah. I don't know that he wasn't. I'm just saying right. he might have been throwing the sideline. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Like I, I have no idea like why they wouldn't uh why they wouldn't invest more. Like it, one, I guess in this particular play, it doesn't matter if they would have had like pretty much the offensive line from the LA Rams in front of them because this comes down to like poor blocking on uh, on Baldwin's part. But back to what we were just discussing, if you have a guy that could do something like this, although the play probably would have been a little bit better, like had you know uh, had Baldwin actually you know done the block and all that. But again, why not invest in a problem that you currently have when you know you have talent everywhere else? I guess I just don't get that. Yeah. Well, they invested in DK when they could have went offensive line. And I would say wide receiver was a pretty decent need. Even if you love Tyler Lockett, there wasn't really much behind Tyler Lockett. You got your Amari Darbo guys out there. I just think that yeah, part of giving that huge contract, they had to have discussed like, hey, man, you're going to have to keep doing what you've been doing. And he was probably like, cool, just show me the money. Yeah. Um, but going through this process live and talking about the film live is an interesting exercise because for years, like if you asked me to go back and describe this play, everyone knows the play. I would have said it was a broken blocking scheme. And it's just because there's guys in the backfield doesn't always mean that the offensive line did a poor job. Um, now we have seen statistics that said that Seahawks offensive line has improved slightly. They're still not great. You would think they would be above average by now having saved so much money on quarterback for five years, but here it's not even an offensive lineman. That's the problem. And Hey, at least kudos to Doug Baldwin. He went out there and uh, corrected the mistake. (laughs) You can kind of see see the moment there too. He's like, Oh, well I missed the block. I should have done that. I'll run around. (laughs) (laughs) No route whatsoever. Just like, I'll go here. And then you see him stop a few times because he thinks Russ is tackled. It's like, Oh, Nope. <laughs> I guess I'll catch this ball that's coming my way now, and then oh shit! I guess I need to run. Should've yeah, I don't, I don't get it. like I would like being an offensive coordinator for the Seahawks. Like that has to be one of the most like nerve wracking jobs like ever, especially when a play winds up breaking down and you're just sitting there having to watch because you have no idea like what's what's about to happen. <laughs> Hey, imagine excitement four times in seven seconds. Just right. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah because yeah, exactly. It's like oh, it's right here in the playbook. Thanks, thanks. Because if it's uh, any of the old guys that I listed off earlier, most of those guys are going down. I oh. mean, they're they'll either give themselves up or they're about to get sacked. Uh, but Justin, I mean, thank you so much for coming and sitting down and talking with us tonight. And I think hopefully for the folks listening at home, they're able to really understand like how I guess the, the duality of you know, the offensive production that we've been discussing with quarterbacks, with wide receivers, with running backs, and how all of that really comes down to the offensive line play and how much, how critical it is to the production that you know, we, we value so much in, in fantasy sports. Uh, but before we get you on out of here, man, we want to let we want to find out like what you've got working, you know, what you've got cooking. And uh, before the season gets going really in earnest over the next, I'd say, three to four weeks. I mean, what can we look forward to coming out coming from you? Yeah, I'll still be pushing some stuff out on uh, four for four and uh, over at SI Fantasy. Uh, I just had an article drop on Monday about boring 
fantasy football producers. And then the next couple of days, I'll have something out on four for four looking at offensive line play and what kind of running back values we can get behind those top 10 uh, offensive lines. So that should be interesting. Uh, outside of that, I'll be pushing stuff forward throughout the preseason and end of the end of the regular season. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, of course, man. And then, uh, Adam, before we get on here, do we have anything for the folks? Yes, yeah, so we're excited to uh, get the DLF show back on the road, so that'll be coming up soon. And then we've got the Fantasy Football Expo where we'll be, we'll be meeting up and seeing a lot of you people that are listening to us. So that's going to be fantastic as well. Um, you can find me at APWILDE. You can find the show at Dynasty Manual. Please like, subscribe, rate, review, all that great stuff. We appreciate all that. And uh, sorry to be the bearer about news, Chris, but it's actually morning and you have to go back to work. I do have to go back to work. And this is that's part of the grind, folks. Uh, sometimes we have to, you know, fit our fit these things into our schedules where we can. So, yeah, I'm back off to work. And of course, yeah, Justin, where can we find you out on Twitter, man? It is at Justin underscore Redwords. All right. So for Justin, for Adam, I'm Chris Allen. I need to go back to work, but you can find me on Twitter <laughs> at Chris Allen FFWX. We thank you all for listening and we'll catch you all next week. When it hits, you feel no pain. for the fantasy championship. Hit the books, kid. Read this pamphlet called the Dynasty Owner's Manual. It's automatic. Dynasty. It's automatic. Owner's Manual. It's automatic, dynasty, it's automatic.